Welcome into the Original Gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein, with my co-host and partner in crime, Dr. James Butelato. Hi, everyone. Hey, now. So we are very excited that we're uh, we're a bit on a, a, a hot streak of content, and uh, we're going to keep this hot streak moving through the spring and into the summer of 21 and uh, keep on bringing you the best guests and the best subjects and keep it real consistent, uh, rolling out a couple episodes uh, a week now at least. So uh, enjoy. And today we uh, are very excited to welcome on a very close friend of the OG podcast and someone who is an accomplished renaissance man across multiple fronts in terms of content related to true crime and whether it be his own story or stories that he's been telling now for going on, uh, you know, I would say at over a decade and a half, and he can tell us more about the story, but his name is Seth Ferrante, and literally this guy has lived a movie script and has helped produce one of the hottest, most watched documentaries in America right now called White Boy, which uh, if people know me, Scott Bernstein, they know that I was involved in that project as well. So he's a business partner. He's a friend, friend of the show, just a superstar in life. Seth Ferrante, thanks for joining us. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Finally, I finally made it to the OG podcast. You're in, man. You're an OG. I mean, so you had to be in the OG podcast because I know a lot of people. I don't know a ton of OGs. Well, I know more than most, but you're definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, you know, I, I always tell people, right, because, you know, just I went to prison for a long time, so, you know, people always assume that I was this type of criminal, you know, or OG or whatever. But I, I always let people know, I say, I'm not a criminal. I never consider myself a criminal. I'm an outlaw. I broke laws that I thought were wrong. So, so there's a difference. Yeah, I mean, that's something when we interviewed George Young, he felt like uh, that was an important distinction philosophically the, the difference between a gangster and an outlaw and he always considered himself an outlaw i know like george christie too same thing consider himself an outlaw never oh, consider yeah, himself yeah. A, a a gangster so just for people if they don't know uh, george young boston george from the movie blow and uh, george christie the boss of the ventura chapter uh, california chapter of the hell's angels and i believe he was number two in charge of the entire organization both interviews we did in the last year or two that you can find in our archive. Seth, do you remember the scene in Blow when George Young is being sentenced and he says, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I stepped across the, across an imaginary line with some, with some uh, what does he say, like uh, some plants, <laughs> right? And she's so, like, yeah, but it's an imaginary oh. line. It's an actual real legal line, and those <laughs> plants are marijuana. Right. So you're going to do, you know, 10 years in jail. Crazy. Let's just dive into the deep end, Seth, and uh, – just, you know, let's tell the tell the listeners your journey, um, how you went from kind of a, a, a army brat, hippie drug dealer to serving almost 25 years in prison. And then while in prison, transforming yourself into this artist, into this author, documentarian. And, you know, when rubber hit the road and, and you got out of prison, uh, what was it, five, six, seven years ago? Yeah, it's set, going on seven. It'll be, uh, well, set seven years next January, so about six and a half. And you're you're really hitting a stride here, and have done some amazing work. So let's kind of let's start from the beginning, man. Tell everyone um, about your childhood and and how you you got into the drug game. And again, I want people to realize that this was, you know, Seth wasn't a a gangbanger or a guy that was rolling in you know heavy violent circles. 
you know, Seth was a, a, a marijuana LSD acid dealer to rich kids in, in high school and college. And the law treated him the same as, as it did the major drug lords of America. And, and I think that inequity is kind of at the crux of, of Seth's journey. So, Seth, tell us. Yeah, they treated me like the uh, John Gotti of the suburbs. But, yep. you know, really, I, I was born in California. You know, I was, I was a California kid. I, I came up in the, you know, the 70s and, and the 80s. So, I mean, it was kind of a different world back then, but, you know, my, my dad was in the, in the military, so we moved around a lot, but we always ended back up in California, you know, cause there was a lot of bases. I spent a couple years in Germany as a kid. I spent like three years as a teen in, in uh, London as a teenager, but I, I was basically, I mean, I was an all American kid, you know I mean? I, we used to do a lot cause in California, you know, we, we ski, you know, go to the beach, you know, I used to ride dirt bikes. But, you know, at the same time, too, you know, I, I was like a choir boy. I was like a Boy Scout, you know, all that. And I was kind of like a, a mommy's little boy. You know, I used to get good grades, honor roll, gifted classes, all, all that type of stuff. Until, uh, you know, like my journey, uh, you know, if you want to call it that, like my, my journey onto the, you know, the underworld or the dark side or whatever that led to prison. And, you know, led to what I'm doing now kind of started when I was 13. That was kind of when, uh, that was the first time I got stoned. You know, I, I, I smoked weed and, um, just smoking weed. It, I mean, it kind of changed my perspective. It kind of, I looked at things, you know, I, I like to think it kind of expanded my, my mind in a different ways. Cause maybe before then I kind of had blinders on, you know, and I, I was looking at life a certain way, you know, as my parents looked at it as, you know, my community, as society, you know, and, you know, all the things like, you know, you're supposed to get good grades, you know, go to church, you know, go to college, you know, get a job, work for somebody, you know, not, I'm not, I'm not knocking those things. You know, a lot, a lot of people do those and a lot of people are happy with those type of things. But once I started smoking weed, it kind of opened up, you know, my, my thoughts and, and my mind to like a, a whole, a whole different world, you know? So that was kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of like, like an enlightenment or, or, or whatever you want to call it. And that was like, I was 13 in 1984. So, you know, 1984, I think, you know, that's kind of like, like in popular culture, that's kind of like when MTV, you know, and, and music videos, you know, so that, that's kind of like my coming of age, you know, it was like, I started smoking marijuana and then like, you know, the pop culture that, people know today, you know, that has evolved into this TikTok world and all this other stuff, you know, Instagram stories, you know, kind of started back then in 1984, you know, with MTV and all the videos and stuff. So, you know, from there, you know, I continued to go to school, but I think I kind of, you know, drifted from being more like the, you know, the good, the good kid or, or the all American kid. I, I kind of drifted, you know, to the other side you know, to the outlaw side, and, and I started, you know, I, and I can say even as a 13-year-old, you know, 14, 15-year-old, I was, I was intrigued, you know, I was, I was intrigued, you know, by the bad boys, you know, I was intrigued by, like, you know, the rappers, like Run DMC and the other rappers, you know, that had this, you know, kind of street image. I, I was very intrigued by, like, the rock stars, you know, like Motley Crue, Van Halen, and, you know, these people kind of living, you know, this real big, you know, fabulous, uh, or what seemed like fabulous to me, you know, kind of lifestyle. And, and that's what I gravitated to. And really, I think drugs, you know, getting into the drug world 
eventually just taking, you know, drugs, mostly, you know, marijuana and psychedelics, although I experimented with other stuff. And then eventually, you know, getting into selling drugs, it kind of, uh, it kind of gave me like that same, um, you know, exclusiveness, you know, like it made me feel like a rock star. And, um, I think from all the, you know, moving around the different places and always being the new kid, you know, and, and, and craving like that acceptance, you know, and that recognition, you know, not having, you know, like, like the same friends, you know, from kindergarten on, you know, kind of, it kind of made me, it made me want to stand out, you know, and it made me want to, uh, you know, be that guy that, you know, people could recognize, you know, for whatever, even if it was something, you know, that was, was bad, you know, cause you got to remember too, this was like, you know, when, when I was coming of age as, as a teenager and I started getting into drugs, this was like at the, the beginning and the, the height of the drug war, you know? So it was just, I always tell people, man, like you see people like, like since I've been out like the last seven years, you know, like in the 2010s and now the 2020s, just the eighties, man, were just a really, a really different time, man. Cause you didn't have the internet, you didn't have all this stuff. So you actually had to go places where the stuff was happening, you know, and, and to do that, you know, sometimes you had to be like kind of bold and, and brash and, you know, jump out there, you know, whereas now, you know, it's not like you could, you know, now you see a lot of people, you know, they just, you know, they're on the screen or, or talking, whatever, you know, I don't want to say, you know, Facebook gangsters or whatever, screen gangsters, whatever you want to call it. Let me just interject one second, because it's the subject that I, I feel pretty strongly about. I think uh, Drake said it best in one of his songs when he said, trigger fingers turn to Twitter fingers. There's so many yeah. internet tough guys out there that, you know, wouldn't be saying what they were saying to your face, but they'll say it behind a computer screen. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, when I, when I came of age in the 80s, I mean, you had to basically put up or shut up. You know, if you jumped out there, you know, like I, I remember in high school, like there, you know, it'd be like, there's like a fight after school and, and it'd be like, you know, everybody did. I, I don't know. Now it seems like if they do that, everybody got a camera and they, they're posting it. So it's just, I don't know, it's just different, man. Let me ask you yep. something, uh, Seth. Uh, that's around the same time I spent some time as a youth growing up in uh, California, um, around that same time. May I ask where you were uh, growing up, what part of California? Well, I was born in Lemoore, and then uh, I spent a lot of my formative years in um, San Diego, and then we lived in Monterey, and we lived in uh, San Jose. But that's where I started, like San Jose, like, you know, the middle of seventh and eighth grade. So you were up and down the uh, the state because I we lived in uh, Mara Mesa, which you'll know in San Diego and Poway and places like that. So I know San Diego uh, pretty well. I still have family there. Yeah, no, I grew up. Uh, we always had a house. We we owned a house, and my parents did in Lemon Grove, and they owned that house for like a number of years. And even though we would get stationed other places, you know, we would always come back and and end up in that that house in Lemon Grove in San Diego. Yeah, I love it there, and it's kind of interesting that same time period. I think about California, like, and and there was still kind of a counterculture there. I mean, I, I think maybe the rest of the country with Reagan was was moving right wing, but in California, I think you still had like a thriving counterculture with like surf culture, skateboard culture, like like you were talking about the the uh, hair metal in the '80s. Then you had like gangster rap and then the Grateful LA. Dead. Grateful Dead was being embraced by a whole new generation, yeah, which yeah. then led to Fish and other jam bands yeah. that also kind of continued that that thread of counterculture. Yeah, through, so through it kind America. of makes sense that you like I at least I think California still had a kind of a counterculture as opposed to like maybe the rest of the nation was moving right wing. No, definitely, man. Because I I remember. 
I went I went to this junior high called Leva in in San Jose, and um I mean it was crazy because it was like I mean you had everything from like the the surfer white boys you know to like the skate punks to like the jocks you know to like the the, the cholos or the Mexican gangbangers and then you know you had all like you know, I, I wouldn't call them gangbangers back then, but, you know, you had all the, the black dudes that were kind of, you know, represent black culture, you know, and they used to have the Jerry Curls and, and stuff like that. And it was very distinct groups, you know, like you could you could walk through the junior high and you're like, okay, there's the Cholos, okay, there's the black dudes, okay, there's the surfers, you know, there's the skate punks, you know, there's the metal dudes. And it was real definable. And um, I was just the type of dude, you know, I used to kind of, bounce you know between between all those cultures you know because you know i had i had like a lot of mexican girlfriends even like filipino girlfriends you know grow up in california and, and black girlfriends too so it was kind of like you know to me especially san jose you know out there in the valley was it was kind of like you know they talk about like america the melting pot and i felt like that's kind of what i grew up in because you know it's not it, it wasn't some people families were richer than others but it was basically all like lower middle class yeah, I mean, I and I remember like uh, being a kid. And I'm not going to talk about who who these people were, but I was around people who were coming from Detroit and and linking up with uh, Mexican dudes in San Diego, and uh, and then they were driving what they we they used to call Crystal back then, and driving Crystal back to Detroit, but they were scoring it in San Diego, and then driving it back to Detroit, so um, yeah, I just remember, like, you're bringing back a lot of memories to me as a kid, witnessing things I probably shouldn't have been uh, witness to, but um, yeah, this is, it just brings back a lot of memories, great music, great subculture uh, back then in California. Yeah, everybody too, like, I remember, you know, I started smoking weed but like once I got into the drug world, like like back then, like speed was really big, man, in, in the in the mid '80s in California, especially like among you know like young adults and teenagers. You know, speed was really big. You know, they had like a lot of angel dust. I mean, you you could always there was always people at parties, you know, smoking angel dust, which you know is PCP. So you know, or they used to call it shurn. You know, they would dip their oh, cigarettes yeah. in it, and it was just crazy. And you know. You had the people doing coke, you know, everybody smoking weed. We used to do, I, I tell people all the time, right? Like I said, when I was like 13, 14, 15, like in Cali, like I would shoulder tap, right? And people like, they don't know what I'm talking about, especially like here in the Midwest, like St. Louis, like they have no idea. They're like shoulder tap. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, you go up, you know, you find somebody go to the liquor store and you tap on their shoulder and you give them 20 and say, hey man, can you buy me some beer and keep oh, yeah. the change? You know, yeah. Buy me a bottle of Mad Dog 2020. And, like, that stuff, I was doing it at 14 and 15. And it's so weird because I, I use that term all the time out here, you know, especially in the Midwest. And, and people, they don't know what I'm talking about. It's like they never had that experience. No, I had that experience a lot. I just never knew it as a shoulder tap. We would just wait outside the liquor store, wait for someone to come out that looked like they were, they were somewhat malleable and pay the money to go get us 40s. No, you're right, though. Like, like before the digital age, like, the, the just the jargon was different, so I I would get kicked back and forth between Michigan and California, and it would be like a whole different lexicon. Like because now everything gets sort of universalized. The word, like, what about the YouTube? word hella? That's a big California word that I I learned going out there in the '90s, and I brought it back. Oh really? Here. I, yeah, I no one knew what I was. Talking I don't remember. About. I don't remember where I got that from. But um, that's hellified. Like when something's fucking real cool, you say right. it's hellified. Yep. Right. I got it from Snoop Dogg. So so when did so Seth? So you start off like as part of this subculture. You're, 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 it sounds like a dude having fun, 
going back and forth from these different subcultures, partying. When does it start to like get a little bit more serious where you're actually starting to push some significant weight? Well, see, first I, we moved from San Jose, like eighth grade. I, I went to England for three years. You know, my, my um, dad got stationed over there. So we got transferred over there and uh, you know, we lived out outside of London, probably about 45 minutes out of London in this uh, town called Trollywood. And, and my dad like worked down in, uh, you know, military American military building in London. And I was, I was bused to this school. It was on high Wickham air force base, but it was called London central. It was like a department of defense school, like all American kids. So, you know, I, I kind of started my, my, my marijuana or my drug journey, you know, in California, but then, you know, just like always, you know, like every couple of years, I, I was ripped, you know, out of like a real comfortable situation where I had like a lot of friends and homeboys and I was really kind of getting comfortable with myself and, uh, you know, thrown into this new situation. And I would say in, in Cali, like 13, 14, 15, you know, I, I was getting weed and partying and stuff, but it wasn't really like I, w- I was selling, you know, I, I might score for people, but you know, I still hadn't got to the point where I realized, you know, that I can get drugs for free if I, you know, use other people's money and, and sell to them. So once I got to England, you know, England and England too, back then they didn't have any, any weed. They didn't have marijuana. It was like all hash. So, you know, right, right when I got to England, you know, I, I hooked up with like, you know, like the metal dudes or, or like the stoner dudes, you know, and I, I'm trying to get some weed, you know, on this Defart- department of defense school on this, uh, you know, UK military base. And, you know, they kind of, they kind of told me like, you got to go into town, you know, the town and the town center in High Wycombe. And they got like a Rasta bar down there, you know, it's like a whole bunch of Jamaican dudes. And they say, you know, you just go outside, you know, you just go out down there, you know, and find somebody and they'll, they'll sell you hash. But, you know, the thing that was happening a lot was a lot of the American kids were going down there and they were getting ripped off. You know, like the Jamaican dudes would like take their money. They would go in the bar and they, they would never come out. And like the, you know, most American kids, military kids, like they were scared to go in the bar, you know, because first off they were underage, but not like that didn't matter that much in England. Cause in England, as long as you can reach a bar, you can drink pretty much. But, uh, you know, just because of the, the cultural difference, you know, they, they were scared. Like, you know, the dudes might beat them up or whatever. And, um, so once I found this out, you know, I, I started going down cause I mean, really from 13, I, I was already like six foot one, like when I was 13, you know, and I already had, you know, I started getting a mustache and stuff like really early, even though I was really skinny, you know, I was really skinny back then, but, uh, you know, I had no problem, you know, I would go down there like, and plus I'm the new kid in England. So I'm trying to impress people, you know? And so like dudes are like, Oh, this is how you do it. But you know, it's kind of shady or whatever, you know, dealing with these guys. So I started going down there, you know, and I, I'm like, this was when I was probably like, you know, I moved there, you know, like 1985. So I, I would go like right in the bars, you know, like I'm like 15 years old and I would go right in the bars and like all the, all the Jamaican and all the black dudes, they would just like, look at me like, like who's this skinny white kid, you know, but I would just go in and act like I was supposed to be there. And, you know, eventually I, I made some contacts and I started, you know, actually made some friends like dudes would come over, you know, and, and smoke splits with me, you know, have some drinks with me and kind of, you know, feel me out so this that's when I really you know got the idea like you know I, I can I can sell to get free drugs you know I can get it you know not still like not like I'm selling for a profit but I'm just you know selling to you so I would get everybody's money up on the base and I would go down to the town and um you know and score and bring everything back up and then 
I got like a reputation, you know, it was like, I didn't, I didn't get ripped off. You know, I could always, you know, close the deal. So, you know, more and more people would come to me to go down there because they didn't feel like dealing with it or they were scared. And, um, you know, this went on, you know, I was in England for three years. So, you know, pretty much full time I was there, even though I, I got expelled from the, uh, the school twice for, you know, uh, for hash. Cause I got busted like on the military base by MPs with hash. So I got expelled twice. And then, uh, I actually had to go to a rehab because the American military was trying to kick me out of the country. Cause they said I was a bad representation of, of American kids, you know? So my parents put me in a rehab, you know, stop it the first time. But then eventually I got a rehab. You know, I started, I was clean a little bit, you know, maybe was, a couple months. So wait, Seth, it was rehab for marijuana and hash? Yeah, they sent me to rehab. They sent me to rehab for hash, yeah. But the, am I wrong? Those aren't physically addictive drugs, right? Yeah, but, you know, it was like, I was, it was when I was 16, you know, basically like when I was sophomore, because, you know, I, I kept getting arrested and, um, you know, busted and kicked out of school. So, like, my dad, his military superiors were like, you know, what's going on with your son? You know, he's a bad representation. Yeah, I get it. You know, kids. So, you know, it was more like a, a politics or a, a diplomatic thing. Social rehab more than like a physical, more than like a physiological rehab, it sounds like. Yeah, but it was crazy because, you know, I went to rehab and it was like one of those places where you go and live for like whatever, three, three months or something. And I was in there. It was all English people. It was like, oh, they were all heroin addicts. <laughs> so, you know, I... I and they were just talking to those people. I still have never used heroin ever to this day and never will. But, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, got schooled. You know, I got schooled more by a bunch of heroin addicts, you know, because I was like the young American kid and I was kind of like a novelty. They're like, what are you doing here? You just like, even then, like, they were heroin addicts, but they still smoked hash because they didn't consider that, you know, like a, a drug like heroin. But um, eventually, you know, I got, I got expelled and I got arrested again in England. I actually got arrested. I had like a, a big, you know, I had like a big buck knife, you know, like an American, you know, like a big hunting knife that I had bought on the American there. And I actually got caught down in Notting Hill Gate when I, I was, I started going into the, the Rasta bars, you know, like down in Notting Hill Gate, like down in the city center in London, because you could get better deals, you know, than kind of out in, in High Wycombe, which which a little bit out in the country. So I started going down there. And uh, one time, like they had a raid, and the cops came in and, and like, I was trying to get out, you know, where they grabbed me. And uh, at first they were like, what are you doing? You know, cause I was a white kid, you know, in a place, a Jamaican bar. And uh, I was like, Oh, I'm just trying to get out of here. But then, you know, they patted me down and that's fine. That knife. And then, you know, they freaked out because over there, you know, like the cops don't even carry guns or especially back then they didn't, I, I don't know about now, but uh, you know, that knife was considered, you know, cause it had over a five inch blade. It was considered like a, a lethal weapon. So, you know, they start freaking out. They like grabbed it from me and they were holding it. They were like, weapon, 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 illegal weapon. And like they all came and, and jumped on me like five. They call them Bobbies, the police. And they're Bobbies over there are big dudes too. So, you know, I'm like 16 and like five Bobbies are, are like coming jumping on me. And uh, I got arrested for that um, knife. And then that was like the last straw. And then my dad's, you know, military superiors basically told him, like, you got to send him back because, you know, he's an, embar he's an embarrassment to us. You know, he's been in too much trouble. And it wasn't a good look. So uh, I came back to the States in uh, 1987, you know, just like a junior, a junior in high school. And um, that's really like my, my drug dealing that led to my case. That's kind of, you know, when that all started to, uh, you know, kind of, kind of shape, you know, because it was like, 
you know, that whole journey, like from 13 to 17, four years, you know, kind of using drugs and, you know, kind of being like a wannabe drug seller or whatever, you know, and then just all the experience of stuff with the Jamaican guys and the Rastafari's and going to the rehab and talking to all the heroin addicts and getting schooled by them on different stuff that, uh, you know, when I, when I came back to the States, you know, and, um, it, it was, to me, it was, it was, it was the same thing. Like I, I wanted to be popular. You know, I wanted people to know who I was. I wanted to be recognized. You know, I wanted people to know my name. So for me, you know, dealing drugs was like the route, the easiest route, you know, cause, cause I could start selling drugs, you know, and then like people in my high school, Robinson high school in Fairfax, Virginia, that's where I moved back to. Um, you know, they really started to know me and luckily my dad's tour of duty ended shortly thereafter, you know, about six or seven months after, you know, so I just stayed, I actually stayed with my godmother and, uh, and one of my god brothers, you know, when I first came back and, and lived with them until, until my family came back like six months later in the summer and my dad got a job, um, you know, working for like a defense contractor, you know, cause he retired from the military. So you were in, at this point, you're in Virginia. That's where, that's where the, yeah. Okay. Did you started like, you, you developed drug connects there and, and like, when do you start really becoming on the radar of like law enforcement? Well, see, this is also kind of like my, my grateful dead connection because, uh, you know, I had two God brothers and, and I was living with my godmother and the younger God brother who was like my age, but I had an older God brother who was like four years younger or four years older. And, um, he was like him and all his friends like used to follow the dead, you know, that, that was like the thing, you know, they would follow the dead and they went to weed and psychedelics. So, you know, as soon as I got back there, you know, I hooked up with him and I started getting weed and, you know, acid and mushrooms and stuff like that. And then as I went to high school, you know, I, I started selling it, you know, and then it, it just, you know, as it's slowly like over that next like junior, senior year. And, and then by the time I was 19, as all those, friends that I met at Robinson high school, which was a big high school, probably like 4,000 people. As they started going to the colleges, they would buy drugs from me in high school or when they were home. So then when they went to the colleges, like they would call me up, they'd be like, be like, Hey man, bring some weed, bring some acid, you know? So I started going to the colleges, you know, first to party, but you know, as I, as I saw the markets there and, and like, I would take, you know, at first I might, I might take like a couple pounds up there and it would just, you know, just like on speculation, but, uh, you know, it's like, it would sell out and like, you know, basically like less than 24 hours. As soon as I got there, you know, I remember going to like West Virginia university or, or Radford, you know, like around 89 when some of my friends were going to the schools or Virginia tech. And literally it would be like, we would be in a house in a room and there would be like a line of people, you know, like out the door, like, you know, 20, 30 people steadily just coming in and we're just like weighing weed out on triple beams, you know, or, or giving them, you know, hits of acid. And I'm just like throwing money in, in like a duffel bag. So, you know, as soon as I figured that out, you know, these colleges were like these massive drug markets, you know, I, I kind of went to my godbrother and instead of buying stuff from him, you know, I was like, look, man, you know, cause he was, he was definitely marking stuff up on me. I was like, look, man, I was like, I need some better connections, man. I'm, I'm generating some money you know, what, you know, hook me up. So, you know, he hooked me up with, with one of his friends, you know, that was on tour all the time who I could just basically like call him. Well, not call him back then. It was more like a, we had like a 1-800 beeper because they didn't have cell phones and stuff. back then. I would just like beep him and I would get like mail or LSD. He would just like, you know, get it sent from San Francisco 
or he would have people, you know, go out, buy a gram of LSD, you know, lay it out for me on the sheets and then send it. And then uh, my godbrother too, he had, he had connections down in Kentucky, you know, for weed. Cause you know, Kentucky, like other than Northern California, which is known as like a real big, you know, outlaw, you know, weed growing place, uh, Kentucky, man, Southern Kentucky is like a really big, you know, outlaw weed growing place too. So, you know, and it was close. So I started going down there, you know, and getting weed down there and bringing it up to the colleges. And that's kind of how that whole thing, like over a three year period from like the age of 17 to 20, you know, we're talking like, you know, probably, you know, 87, 88 to 90, it just, you know, stuff just steamrolled. It, it started getting bigger and bigger until, you know, by, by 1990, you know, like a year before I caught my case, I, I was supplying like 15 colleges in, in five states with uh, weed and LSD. I have a, a funny story. Well, I think it's funny. My, uh, You're talking about the beeper. So I teach a gangs and organized crime course, and my students, part of their work is they have to do a film presentation. And one of my students, their presentation uh, last week was the movie Menace to Society. And as they were presenting it, the one student goes, yeah, the character, uh, I think it's Kane. Um, he, he has this thing that keeps on beeping and I didn't, I didn't know what that was about. And so the students had to like Google, yeah. they had to like look up what like, and they still kind of like didn't fully comprehend like what the point of it was. So I had to explain to them like what, <laughs> what we used to use beepers for back in the, uh, in the eighties and the nineties. So I don't know. I just thought that it just reminded me of that when you said that it's pretty funny. No, and two, if, if, like, if you were, like, you know, because everybody had, like, the drug dealers had, like, the local beepers, right? But, like, if you were, like, a big drug dealer, like me, like, moving around different states, you had to have the 1-800 beeper. Oh, you know? that's, so that's baller like, stats. <laughs> you know, they had those big-ass cell phones back then, the cars and stuff. But, I mean, that was more, those things were so expensive, man. You know, I, I'm sure they were, like, a couple grand. So, I never had one of those. It just wasn't feasible. Plus they were like so big and bulky. I'm sure there were a lot of drug dealers using them back then, but you know, not in the circles I moved in, you know, with, you know, mostly the deadheads and, and, and the college students. But, uh, even my case, right? Like my case, I call my case in, uh, the, the summer of 1991. And, and really like what they say, like, uh, you know, it's, it's basically like the last nine months of my run is what they kind of documented. And it's, it's also like those last nine months, those were like my biggest, you know, cause those last nine months, you know, this is like 1990, I was probably making like 20, 30 grand a month, you know, cash. And, um, you know, for a teenager, I mean, I was a big drug dealer, you know, but in the big scheme of things, I was really a small drug dealer, but it, it was like, I was just kind of evolving and figuring out, you know, like, man, like I can make a lot of money doing this, you know? So it was just really those last nine months, you know, cause before, you know, I was fucking around, you know, I was selling drugs. I was, I was doing stuff, but it was more like partying, you know I mean? I was making money, but I was spending it just as fast, you know, and spending it mostly like on my friends, you know, to be popular and stuff like that. But that last nine months, you know, I was kind of like, man, I can become a cash millionaire if I do this for a couple more years, you know, and that, that was kind of my goal in my mind. I was like, you know, I want, I want to be a cash millionaire. I want to have a million cash. How were you spending your money? Oh, man, I, I would do, like, crazy stuff. You know, I, you know, the Air Jordans came out in the mid-'80s, right? So, you know, the Air Jordans came out, and they started that just little, and then the brand kind of took off, so then they started putting out more and more. So I, I was, like, always buying. I was buying the new Air Jordans. I would buy, like, all the different colors I could. I, I was, like, a, a, 
you know, like, I mean, they talk about like sneaker heads now and stuff. I mean, but you know, probably by 1991, man, I, I probably not just Air Jordans, but like other, other basketball shoes and other shoes too. But I, I probably sneakers, you know, so I was spending loads of money. I used to spend loads of money on clothes, you know, like I, I was rocking like the polos, you know, back then that was my thing, you know, and then uh, I would just take, I would take people out. Like, you know, you know, like in, in high school, like you have parties and it's like the end of the party. It's like 2 a.m. and everybody's ready to go home. And, and I was always like the dude, like, man, let's go to Denny's. You know, and a lot of people would be like, oh. White Castle on me. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, we don't got no money. And I'd be like, man, I don't care. I would take like 30 people to Denny's, you know, and pay for all that. And then, and then too, I had like, in each of those colleges, man, I was, I was paying like rent, you know, in each of those colleges. Or had a room that I rented or I was helping pay the bills. And most of those places, I was always paying the phone bills because when I would come in, I would like use the phone, you know, cause it was just landlines. Right. And people beat me from the different colleges. Like when you coming through, or I got this money from you or I need this. So, you know, I would make like phone calls. Like when I would get to my buddy's house, you know, where I might be paying rent, you know, and have like a room or something, you know, to sleep for when I came through. I would use a phone for like two, three hours and it would be like massive long distance, you know, two, $300 phone bills. So I had like all these bills at all these different colleges, you know, to kind of, you know, make, make my business and, and run it easy. But, uh, then too, you know, I, I mean, I had some cars. I, I never got really big in, into the, into the cars. You know, I, I, I had like three different, uh, you know, back then they had those, uh, Subaru, it was a Subaru uh, four-wheel drive turbo station station wagons. Yeah. You know, they, they used to say turbo on the side. So I had, like, three of those. Those were, like, my smuggling cars, and I would, like, always switch them. You know, and then uh, one time, you know, I bought a, a Toyota Supra. I think I bought, like, an 89 Toyota Supra, like, cash, you know, when I was, like, whatever, like, 18. But that was probably, like, my biggest, like, for big purchases. Mostly it was just, you know, spending money, you know, on, on – girls you know spending money on my friends you know buying all the kegs for the party you know stuff like that did your uh family have any sense of what was going on at that point or were you on your own pretty much no i mean i mean they 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 kind of knew you know i, I kind of had a thing you know with with my parents when my senior year of high school where uh you know, I, I was just coming and going as I wanted, and, and I was kind of cutting school, and, you know, I was leaving the state and, and doing drug runs and stuff like that, and, and they were kind of, they kind of knew about it, so they kind of tried to put their foot down, and they were like, you know, until you graduate from high school, you know, you're going to listen to our rules, and you're going to do what we say, and so I was kind of like, it was it was like my senior year, right, just when I turned 18, you know, like halfway through, and uh, I basically told them, okay, well, I'm going to quit high school. And I went and I got my GED that weekend, you know, just, just to kind of, you know, spite them. And then as soon as I did that, you know, I, I came back and they were like, well, you know, while you live in our house, you know, you're going to live by our rules. And then so I like moved out, like, you know, a couple weeks later, you know, I went and, and got an apartment with my godbrother, like in, uh, down in Alexandria, you know, like the real ritzy, like kind of old town section. But, uh, I would say they, they knew what was going on to an extent, but I would say, you know, they were in denial, you know, because, I mean, they knew I had a lot, of, a lot of problems with drugs, you know, earlier. But, you know, by this time, I'm trying to be, you know, more on point. And, you know, whereas I had longer hair, you know, as a younger teenager, you know, by the time, like, 19 and 20, I started, you know, dressing, like, more preppy, 
you know, because where it was Northern Virginia, it's like a really lily white preppy area. So I, I started dressing really, you know, preppy, you know, had my hair shorter, you know, just trying to fit in and blend in more, you know, because I was really, I was, I was doing more wrong. So I was trying, you know, I didn't want to, you know, go to all these colleges. Like I'm some long haired, uh, you know, hippie dude wearing tie dyes, you know, where the police are going to, you know, pull me over and stuff. So I, I try to really look kind of conservative and, and blend in with the rest of the kids. Let me ask you something about the subculture from the supply end, because I think when we think about like, um, you know, cocaine or heroin or something like that, you start to think about more like traditional organized crime figures, at least the higher up you go, you're going to run into traditional organized crime figures. But like, what about with psychedelics? I mean, I'm, I'm like, like from the supply end, I mean, what kind of, who are the, like the, like the kingpins in that realm in terms of the suppliers for like mushrooms, LSD, um, mescaline, things like that. It's deadhead. You know, it's like people from deadhead culture, you know, they, they pretty much run that. They got different families, you know, and different families have different chemists. So they have the chemists, you know, make the stuff and then they put it out and, and that's how they used to sell it. Like all through the eighties and nineties, they would throw, sell it through like a lot, you know, on the dead shows, you know, like everybody knew, Every time when there was a dead show, like if there was a dead show in Philly, we would fly 25 grams of crystal LSD in, you know, and then, then when they got the 25 grams in, you know, they would lay it in sheets, you know, which, which they, you know, like they, they dip it in the sheet, they get the, uh, the blotter paper, you know, the peripherated blotter paper, which is kind of like construction paper. And a lot of times they would have some, you know, could have anything like Bart Simpson's on it, you know, to MC Escher, you know, to all these different, you know, um, you know, artwork and stuff. And, um, that, that's basically how they transported it around the country. But, but a lot of times they, they would fly that in. And a lot of times it came from San Francisco because a lot of the chemists were like in San Francisco, Berkeley area, you know, hate Ashbury. That's always kind of been the, the stronghold of, of the, you know, the, the deadhead, you know, cause that's where the grateful dead's from. So did like, did any like, uh, traditional gangsters like ever recognize like the market and maybe try to like muscle in on, that or do they pretty much leave it to the more like counterculture types? No, I mean, I would say, I mean, I, I didn't know any personally, but you know, I mean, I, I met different like mafia dudes or, or, you know, mafia associates in prison, you know, that they would say, you know, that they, they would get acid or they had acid contact. And then I met others that say like they would go, you know, like when they have the shows, they would go and actually like press, you know, the, the deadheads or, you know, like rob them and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say a, a real big connection. The, the, the main connection is uh, there's more like a biker connection. There was this group of basically deadhead bikers that, out of New York that they called the Wrecking Crew. You know, they were like these dudes in – most of them are dead now, but like in the 80s, these dudes were like larger than life. You know, dudes like like, like the Grateful Dead had songs about them. The, one guy's Cosmic Charlie, another guy's Fast Eddie. Like in the deadhead culture, these guys are like mythical figures. But they, they were in this thing – it was called the wrecking crew and they were kind of like deadhead bikers and they were like almost like they were like unofficial, like hell's angels, basically, you know, the, the, the wrecking crew. And so, so they had these guys and then they had kind of, you know, the, their associates and stuff. And, you know, through these guys, you know, stuff type, you know, seep definitely into the biker world, but, you know, once it got in the biker world, you know, it would get into the, you know, the mafia world too, because, you know, a lot of the bikers, you know, the bike groups have, you know, contacts, do business with the mafia. So that's kind of how, you know, it was spread out, you know, other than, 
you know, like I said, you know, like some individual, you know, like mob dudes or associates, you know, might go to the lot and set up deals. But you heard like a lot, like, you know, they, the deadheads would usually shy away from like organized crime figures because most of the time they would end up getting ripped off because, you know, these weren't violent. These weren't gangsters. They were just deadheads, you know, about peace and love and, you know, what they call the righteous drugs, you know, like marijuana, weed and, and psychedelics have always been known as righteous drugs, you know, because you don't have like all the addiction and, and people fiending and jonesing and, you know, all the violence you have associated with like, you know, the heroin or, or cocaine trade. Is it just me, Bernie, or like I'm picturing in my head right now, a TV show or a movie about a 19-year-old preppy dude navigating through this world, the deadheads, the bikers, the mob guys. I've like, said this <laughs> fucking that, like, rad, dude. his story <laughs> stacks up with any mobster or gangster or criminal he's ever written about because it, it comes at it from a whole yeah, different angle. Fascinating. And this is, you know, I say this in all due respect to a lot of these pop culture celebrated gangland figures that uh, Seth and I and, and even Jimmy, too, uh, have you know met or interacted with in our research, and maybe with in the street culture, some of those stories might be viewed as oh this needs to be a movie, but in reality it's not going to be a movie because it's kind of redundant. We've yeah. seen that story standard, before. but that story really strikes a chord in my opinion, um, in my humble opinion, uh, that you know if Hollywood embraced, you could have like you know, your own version of the hurricane. Not to say that Seth was wrongly convicted, but a story of redemption, a story of a reinvention in prison, a story of a broken system, and told from the story, or told from the the uh, perspective of a military brat, you know, hippie, grateful dead drug dealer that eventually kind of transforms into a... a a preppy that's working kind of not undercover, but, you know, molding his image to, to help further his uh, criminal career, then gets busted. Seth, we can, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. You can talk about this now, but once you got busted, you went on the run for a couple of years. He was a fugitive. He was on, you know, uh, I don't know if you were on the FBI's most wanted list, but you were on some U S marshals. Yeah, U.S. Marshals top fifteen. Hey, but you know, you know, Scott too. Like, I, I look at everything, like everything I've been through, and, and everything, like even prison and all the stuff we're talking about now, and even now. And I think, like, like my whole background, like being a military brat and always having to, you know, meet new people, and, and like I, I, I meet people real easy, you know, and I'm real personable, and it, it's because of that experience. So it really helps me you know, to deal with all these different people. Cause I, I was always being every two or three years, I always was like, you know, my boat was being rocked and I was thrown into these new situations. So I, I adapted really easily, you know, to help me, uh, you know, it helped me kind of every, everything I did, you know, looking back, I mean, when you're doing it, you're just a kid and you're, you're doing it, you know, and you're just trying to do the best you can and, and really survive and, you know, and, and not get robbed or, you know, not have somebody, you know, take advantage of you or, you know, rip you off or, you know, take your stuff or whatever. But, you know, looking back though, you know, I, I can really see how that kind of, you know, set me up for everything. And um, also I wanted to like touch lightly too, like on the deadhead thing, like 
I was never really into the dead music. You know, I, I had some times where I listened to the tapes and stuff, but you know, the, the big thing with the dead was like the live music. And I was never really into like the live music thing, you know, for other bands, you know, I was more like a, a, a punk, you know, metal rap dude. That's like my music, you know, that I still listen. You know, I, I like like NWA, you know, Deftones, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, love the hair metal stuff. I love, I love Deftones. That. Deftones are fucking awesome. That's one of the most underrated bands out there, I think. Yeah, so even even like you know like like a lot of people associate with me with deadheads, and I do. I have a lot of friends who are like hardcore deadheads, but you know my friends who are the hardcore deadheads, they know that basically I was just on the deadhead scene to be a drug dealer, you know, because it was like, you know, other than the college scene, like I discovered, you know, how I explained earlier about the college scene, how it was just like these, you could generate a tremendous amount of money like real quick, you know, with with these type of drugs, these weed and psychedelics, like you know, like the lot, like the uh the deadhead team too it was like an open-air drug market you can make so many contacts you're gonna get so many you know different exotic type of drugs and to, to give you a sense of that i, I want to tell you you know there was one time like we would go to the different shows i would go i went to the shows all the time but i went to the shows you know more for like the lot and the scene and, and the drugs but uh you know back then we we would hit the lot right wherever show it might be madison square gardens you know it might be columbus ohio you know deer park indiana you know, uh, Washington, D.C., you know, FedEx Field, you know, but uh, which I can't even think of what they called it way back then. Oh, I don't, I can't even think what they called the, the Washington Stadium back then. RFK. But, uh, Wasn't it RFK? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But what we would do, right, we would go and hit the lots, right? And like most of the tickets were way cheaper back then. You know, you could get into a concert for like 20 bucks. But they said the scalpers would sell like the, the private boxes, like the VIP. And, you know, they would sell the drug dealers because we could pay more. And, you know, that might be like $100, $150, right? And so we would go to these different shows. And like I say, I wouldn't even be there for the music. I would be there for the drug scene. And I would get, you know, I would go to scalpers. And, they, you know, after a while, they started, you know, recognizing me. And I would pay the money. And I would get, like, these private boxes, you know, like like they have in all these stadiums, stadiums and, uh, and, and arenas and stuff. And you would go in these private boxes, right, like these VIP boxes, and it would just be like, it would be like all drug dealers, like all, you know, from the great point, some hardcore deadheads, some just like the local drug dealers in whatever city you're at. And it was like, it was crazy because you could go in there. And back then too, like the late eighties, like you could smoke weed and do drugs and everything. They, they didn't give a fuck. Like if the Grateful Dead came to town, they didn't give a fuck. Like they weren't placing that like they do now, you know? So you would go in these private boxes. I would go in these private boxes. And there'd be all these different, you know, drug dealers. And you don't even know who's going to be in the private box. It's whoever the scalper sells the ticket to. And it was crazy because you would go in there, you, you'd want to have, like, your best weed, your best hash, your best acid, your best mushrooms. Because it was like everybody was, like, trying to one-up each other. You know, like somebody would break out, like, a big Cheech and Chong joint, you know, like <laughs> hash infused, you know. And, and then somebody else would be like, oh, I got some, like, Thai sticks. You know, somebody else would be like, oh, I got some uh, – you know, I got some weed from, you know, Northern Cali, Humboldt County, Emerald Triangle, you know, and somebody else might have, oh, I got some Alcapulco gold. And it was just like, it was crazy. You know, and they would have like all the different acid, all the different prints. People would have like liquid acid, you know, and they would literally take it, you know, they, they used to put acid in, uh, you know, like food coloring bottles. Yeah. You know, that that's how they, like the liquid acid, right? That was like a big thing too. Like every dead show, like dudes, you know, when they got the, the crystal in, you know, before they made it into the, you know, the soluble form, they would go out to the grocery stores and buy, you know, like packs and packs of, uh, you know, the, the, uh, 
you know, the, the, the food coloring stuff. And then they would, you put it, they would empty, and that's what they put in. And then they would have droppers, right? And they would literally have, like, you know, sugar cubes. And dudes would just come up. You know, they take a sugar cube out. they they take the stopper out. You know, they dip the acid, dip it in the acid and, and put it on the sugar cube and it'd be like, here. And, you know, you could be like, oh, I want more. You know, and they put more. They didn't care. And it was it was like this crazy, like, thing of, like, you know, like, when I envision a movie, like, about my story, this is, like, what I envision. I envision, like, these, you know, like, we're in these private boxes and just everybody's doing, like, all these exotic drugs. And these are, like, drugs, like, you can't even buy. Like, they won't even sell them. You know, because it's like it's like so exotic, or the weed strains are so good, or or the hash or whatever they have. And uh, I just have like real vivid memories of being in these different cities, you know, and not even listen to the music because a lot of times in the, in these rooms, people they weren't there for the music, they were there, you know, for the drug scene. They were there, you know, to, to stunt, you know, and to front and, That's and awesome. to show, <laughs> yeah, and to show who has like you know the baddest drugs. And some dudes might be like little preppy dudes like me. Some might be like the local drug dealer from whatever city you're in. And then you might have like the, you know, the more hardcore dead drug dealers, you know, from like the different, you know, families, you know, that have evolved, you know, since the beginning of the Grateful Dead, you know, they have the chemists and everything. And that's where you would just make the connections, man. And you might talk about business there, but, you know, you do the business later, you know, or they give you the hookup, whatever, you know, they give you their 1-800-beeper number. But, uh, yeah, I just remember, man, just being in there. And as a young kid, usually a lot of times I was the youngest kid in there, but once I round, dudes would start recognize me. And really why they recognized me, not just because I was round, they recognized me because I could generate money. You know, I could come with 20 or 30 grand, you know, for a buy or more. I could come with 50 or 60. Not that I ever had, you know, tons of money, you know, but, you know, I mean, I, I might, like the most money I might have counted is maybe like, you know, 150 grand, you know, and most of that probably wasn't even mine. You know, but still, you know, when you can come, you know, with that type of amount of buying money, you know, you can get people's attention in, in the underworld. So were you, uh, what about mescaline? Were you, was that, I mean, I remember in high school, was that something you guys were selling too? Yeah, yeah. No, I, back then, you know, I would see some, some mescaline and, and, you know, I might do it sometime or, or sometime, you know, some peyote too. But uh, I do got, I do got a, a funny mescaline story, but this was when I was a fugitive, um, when I was a fugitive, when I was first a fugitive, I, I was, I spent a lot of time down in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, and I, I got some mescaline one time. I, I was getting weed, you know, from this, from this Mexican guy. And he was like, Hey, he's like, you want some mescaline? I was like, yeah, cool. You know, I didn't really, you know, I never sold mescaline before. So he gave me, he gave me like an ounce of mescaline. And so then I brought it back. So I, all the people that I sold weed to, I, I was like, man, I got some mescaline. And they were like, they were like, cool, cool, cool. So, you know, dudes started coming over, and, and they were looking at it, and, and they were like, what is this? I'm like, it's mescaline. And they're like, no, nah, man, we we want cho- chocolate mesk. We want chocolate mesk. You know, and I was like, chocolate mesk? I was like, what the fuck is chocolate mesk? So I called the Mexican dude back up. I'm like, everybody says they don't want this. They want chocolate mesk, man. You gave me the wrong shit. And so the Mexican dude tells me, he's like, no, man. He goes, check it out, dude. He goes, just go to the fucking store. He goes, buy some fucking Nestle's quick. He goes, go buy it, cut it with the Nestle's quick, and mix it all up, and then put it in the bags. He goes, that's chocolate mesk. <laughs> I was like, like, I didn't even know. I had no fucking clue, but that was like the thing in Texas. They wanted chocolate mesk, and that was how they did it. Like, that was the way they sold it, you know, and then I figured that out. And then, like, that ounce I had sold real fast. And, uh, you know, I, I was taking mesk a lot. I, I remember mesk, though. It was kind of like being stoned, but it was, like, more like a rubber band. Like, you were kind of moving around, you know. I think we used to call it dots. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember Bernie or Seth? Do you remember? I think maybe that was just an east side of, like, Detroit thing, like, 
But we used to call them dots, yeah, every, I think. Calls different, yeah, because like that's how you say in Texas it was chocolate mask, and really I I haven't barely heard anybody else talk about chocolate mask, you know, in my whole life besides when I was down there that one time. So like, let's fast forward to when. So like, about the time you're about to get busted, let's let's walk through that like process if if we can. All right. Well, first I got um, there was this guy that he he was actually this metalhead dude who uh he was a, a real good friend of mine. His his dad was like a diplomat. His name was Dave, and um, his dad would be gone like two, three months at a time, you know, and, and you know, doing, you know, stuff overseas and stuff. And uh, he would just leave. You know, Dave was like, you know, 17, 18, 19 this time, so he would just leave him there. And, you know, he would just throw, like, massive parties. Like, his house would just, while his dad was gone, it would just be like, it's a frat party house. You know, just like beer cans everywhere, never cleaned up unless we got a bunch of girls, you know, to come over there and clean it up and stuff. But, uh, you know, basically... Uh, this dude, like, we would have master parts, and, um, you know, kind of, like, when, when I got more slick with it, you know, like, that last nine months when I decided, you know, like, I can make money, you know, I got to, you know, kind of change my image and, and look more clean cut, you know, because I'm going to become a cash millionaire, I stopped fucking with him, you know, even though he was, like, one of my real good friends, you know, from my first couple years in Virginia, you know, because I, I just thought, like, I mean, he would just sell to anybody that came to his house, you know, and he would just like anybody in his house. And, you know, I was trying to insulate myself as I was kind of, you know, making more money, you know, and, and rising in the drug game, you know, and getting better contacts. I, I was insulating myself, you know, and I, I didn't want to be around, you know, people that, you know, did what I considered stupid stuff, just selling to anybody. So this dude actually got busted. He, um, you know, and I hadn't done anything with him, you know, for probably, you know, whatever, like, you know, eight, nine months, a year or something. And, and he got busted. He sold acid to this 16 year old kid. And this 16 year old kid was at this big field party out in Clifton, which uh, Clifton is like an area in Fairfax County where it's all like million dollar houses. You know, like a lot of politicians live there, you know, like a lot of Washington Redskins lived out there. You know, these were like million dollar houses, like in, you know, the late eighties, you know, to give you some perspective, but they, they would, sometimes they would have, you know, these, they sit on like big lots, like, you know, three, four or five acre lots. And, um, they, you know, when people's parents would go, they would have massive field parties out there. So it was in the summer and there was this massive field party. And this guy, Dave had sold this kid some acid and, um, the cops came to bust the party. Right. And this kid, they found this kid. He was like 16 year old kid. He was like running through the woods, you know, naked, you know, like tripping on acid. And so like one of the cops, you know, like they chased him and they grabbed him. And when this was going on, like somehow the kid got a hold of the cop's gun out of his holster and he shot the cop, you know, he didn't kill him or, or shoot. He this shot is a great in scene in the this movie. Is, right, <laughs> right. This is the movie. Right. Right. Yeah. So he shot, he shot this kid, he, this kid, you know, pulled the gun and he, and he shot the cop in the arm, you know, basically like a flesh wound, but whatever, you know, he shot you the cop. Shoot a cop. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So, so what, what happened, you know, then, you know, this is like 1991, you know, the war on drugs had been going on for about three years at this time, but mostly they were knocking up like, you know, African Americans, you know, from the inner cities for the crack trade, you know, so, you know, in, in DC and other places, there were, you know, after they were locking up African Americans steadily for like three years and, and giving them all these, you know, 10, 20 to life, you know, sentences, there was a little pushback. So 
right when there was given this pushback, you know, they, they were saying these laws are racist, which, you know, they are racist, but, you know, the, the politicians and, you know, the DEA and right in D.C., they were trying to prove that, oh, no, it's not racist. We bust right drug dealers, too. So this was like the first wave when they started getting the marijuana and LSD, like 91. That's the wave I got caught up in. So my case kind of fell into their lap. So, uh, you know, this kid, obviously, you know, he told where he got the drugs from. So, you know, that took the state people to Diego. So, so this guy, Dave, he sets up this other guy that was kind of like acting as one of my distributors, you know, because he still used to sell to him. I didn't sell to him directly, but this other guy would sell to him named Chris. So Dave sets up Chris in the sting, and then it's like, boom, it's like a state case, right? And then, like, one of the guys, this other guy named Scott, that was with Chris when they got lured, lured into the sting and set up by Fairfax County, he's holding 120 sheets of acid for me, you know, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, I wouldn't hold anything. I would get these other kids, you know, I would put it wherever, you know, they would hold it for me. But uh, so he tells the cops, he's like, you know, he's like scared to death, you know, they're threatening, but they're not even looking for like this 120 sheets of acid. They don't even know who I am at this point. You know, they're just trying, you know, to find out. And this kid, he's like spills everything. He's like, oh, I got 120 sheets and it's Seth. And they're like, Seth. And they're like, so they, you know, then these other guys like Dave and Chris, they kind of corroborate it. And like I say, I'm not, I'm not like the anti-snitch dude, whatever at the time I, I was quite angry, but you know, in retrospect, I look back, we, we were just all like, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class kids, you know, partying. And, and, you know, I blame the feds and the, and the laws, you know. So when the feds come in, you know, they're threatening, like, 10 years to life. So what started out is, like, a simple state case for maybe, like, you know, 20 sheets of acid, which is, like, 2,000 hits, turns into this big federal conspiracy, you know, because these guys couldn't keep their mouth shut. But, you know, at the same time, the feds are, like, and the DEA are pressing for this, so you know, because they want to make themselves look good politically. Like, hey, we bust white drug dealers too. We just don't, you know, whack these uh, African American crack dealers in the head. You know, we go after you know the white guys from the nice areas. So uh, they started this big investigation, and and even like some of the papers, you know, ended up like the Washington Times and the Washington Post. Even you know, they said even back then they said it was like, you know, so. Uh, you know, they go and then, you know, they eventually pull me in. You know, I, I get, uh, you know, I got, I got indicted federally. And then, uh, you know, and I'm looking at, I'm looking at 20 to life. And I got like a, they, they threw like a CCE charge at me. It's like a, a continual criminal enterprise, you know, like something they use like on Manuel Noriega or like they would use on Pablo Escobar or like John Gotti, like dudes of this stature. They throw that, the continual criminal enterprise. It's like a RICO. Yeah, it's the DEA's version of a RICO. Uh, it's like an 848, you know, and it's like crazy. So they throw this at me, right? And uh, I'm like, I had, I had no idea, you know, because, I mean, I, I guess I knew about the war on drugs, you know, but I, I thought it was like, you know, like everybody else. I was like, oh, this is going to come to the suburbs, you know? I mean, you know, like even back then, you know, like like my parents' house, you know, my where I'm living in like, a, you know, my parents' house, you know, my parents were like, it's like a half million dollar house in, in Northern Virginia, you know? So I'm like, oh, this doesn't come out here. But, you know, they were already doing all the things to make it come out there. And um, they, like, heavily pursued my case, man. And basically, like, everybody that I knew told on me. And like I say, I don't blame them now. You know, I was probably angry for a lot of years in prison, you know, and I probably called them all snitches and stuff like that. But, you know, now, whatever, man. I, I blame the government, you know, and the way they operate and, and all that. Because, you know, 
a lot of these kids, what else are they going to do? You know, they're, they're threatening them 10 to life if they don't tell on me. So, you know, they tell on me, some get off, some get a couple years. So, um, you know, I get this federal indictment and, and I'm on it. And, um, you know, they get all these other kids and, and me and like, I'm at the top of the pyramid. I'm like the kingpin and they start putting the papers, you know, like the Washington post, like the LSD kingpin. And then, uh, you know, I'm looking at all this time. Right. And then, my lawyers too. Like I hired, like first I had a state lawyer, you know, cause first it was like state and then it went federal. So then I got a federal lawyer and like the first thing these, the fed lawyers are saying to me, he's like, uh, you know, the, the, the first person to the table, you know, the first person to the buffet gets the best deal. You know, it's like, like it's, it's just like so fucked up. Like that's the first thing they're selling to me. They're telling me to snitch, you know, they're like, look, you don't want to face 20 life. You know, you got to snitch. And I'm like, fuck, I was in this fucked up situation. Like, Definitely didn't want to do the 20 life. Definitely didn't pitch on anybody. You know, so I was like, you know, what what are my other choices, man? I was like, you know, racking my brains. And at this time, you know, like I'm, I'm heavily, you know, I'm, I'm fucked up. You know, like I'm, I'm drinking a lot, you know, because it's a real stressful period. You know, when all your, it's like, you, I, I, it always reminds me like, you know, they, they got like that Jimi Hendrix song, like, you know, Castle's made of sand, slip into the sea eventually. You know, I built this whole like empire, but it was, you know, it was built on, you know, sand. So it was like, it just dissolved real quick, like overnight, you know, I was like, boom, set the man. And then boom, I'm hit, you know, I'm, I'm busted by the feds and like, you know, nobody even wants to fucking talk to me, you know, cause that's how it went back then in the drug game. You know, once you get busted, everybody's like, Oh, stay to the side. Don't even talk to me. And, uh, so I was like, I was like real fucked up. I was drinking a lot, you know, using drugs, you know, tripping on acid and, um, I, I used to remember, like, I read the papers, you know, like back then, you know, people used to get papers and read papers and stuff like that. So, you know, as posted today. So, uh, you know, I, I used, I just remember like looking in the papers, I was always a big sports dude. So I would always go right to the sports section, but I remember like in the Metro section, sometimes you would see like, you know, like teen commit suicide, you know, at great falls, you know, or, or like, you know, uh, you know, whoever different people would like, there was this national park called Great Falls and this river going through it called the Potomac River, you know, and there was part of the Potomac River, you know, it went out to the Atlantic Ocean, but there was part of the Potomac River. It's known as like class five rapids, you know, and, and like only the class, only the expert kayakers would like kayak there, you know, cause they like class five rapids. That's like the highest level, you know, it's real, you know, violent waves and water and, and, you know, you can get smashed into the rocks. So people used to jump off the cliff, and jump into the Potomac River in this one point, you know, where there were these class five rapids to commit suicide. And I remembered, you know, during this period, I remembered seeing that, you know, in the metro section, you know, so I kind of formed this idea, you know, I was like, look, I don't want to face 20 to life. I don't want to tell on nobody. So I'm like, I, you know, and I had a little bit of money. I had a little bit of money. You know, it's not, I didn't have a lot of money, but, you know, I, I you know, I, I probably had, you know, whatever, 20, 30,000. So I was like, you know, uh, I'm just going to get the fuck out of here. You know, I'm going to fake my suicide. I made up this plan, you know, and, um, you know, I went there, I kind of, uh, I kind of staged it. I even, uh, you know, like for a couple weeks before, like I would floss my teeth really hard and then I would get like some of my clothes and I would like get the blood, you know, I mean, really in truth, you know, I, I was like too big of a pussy to like cut my arm open or something <laughs> and get my blood. That was like the only way I could get my blood. I was like, okay, I'll floss. I'll floss really hard and then you know put my shirt you know and get my blood because i figured i was going to throw all that in you know in case you know they they found to match my dna so 
I went there. You know, I, I already had a plan. I was going to California and seeing with some people I knew I knew in uh, the L.A. area. Actually, this girl, that uh, her dad lived on a military base in Point Magoo. I went right out and stayed with her when I first became a fugitive. But, uh, you know, I staged it. I threw my clothes in. Like, I left a note in my car there. You know, I had, like, I made, like, a little setting with, like, my jacket, you know, some cigarettes, you know, my wallet with my ID money you know i had like a bottle of vodka you know and i did like this suicide note and i even started hinting to people you know because i was fucked up anyhow i was doing you know drinking a lot and really fucked up so i started hinting to people like oh i can't take this i'm just going to commit suicide like anybody that would listen basically and um yeah so i faked my suicide i staged it and then you know i took off i, I had actually my god you know drove me to the airport and i took off to la but uh you know, the only thing I, I fucked up, right? I did the, uh, I committed, the, I staged the suicide in the wrong part of the river because the part of the river where I did it, they got a dam, you know, right after that, like a, like a mile or, or two down, you know, a dam to ca- to, to kind of calm the, uh, the river down because, you know, they got all the bridges into DC, you know, over the Potomac River. So I, I staged it in the wrong part of the river and the US park rangers, you know, they, they dragged the river for two weeks searching for a body you know, by the dam and they didn't find a body. So then, you know, they, they told the uh, prosecutor's office and the prosecutor, you know, office declared my suicide a hoax, you know, cause at first it was like, you know, LSD, LSD kingpin, you know, commit suicide. That was like the headline. And then like two weeks later, it was like, you know, prosecutors declare LSD kingpin suicide a hoax. And um, the whole time I'm out in LA and I'm staying with this girl and I'm like on her house, her dad's like the XO of the base in Point Magoo, and we're driving down into L.A. every day, you know, because that's a little bit up the coast. So we're driving to L.A., you know, to go to the newsstands, you know, because they had all those big newsstands, and I'm getting, like, the Washington Post paper. So, like, I'm reading everything as, like, it's happening, like, over that two weeks. And then, like, two weeks ago, and I see that they declared it a hoax, and I was just like, man, I was like, fuck, like, I fucked up because, you know, my idea was after seven years I got to be – be declared legally dead, you know, and once Seth Ferranti is declared legally dead, you know, the charges are gone, you know, so that was kind of my idea. And also at this time, you know, from being in college and stuff, you know, I started getting fake IDs really easy, real, real early, like around 17, you know, I was getting, like I had friends at West Virginia University and other places, like they were making fake IDs, you know, like you just go right there in their room and they take all the picture and they had all the press and everything and they would make it, but we were doing it mostly you know, to get to bars, you know, for underage drinking. But then once I decided, you know, all this stuff happened, uh, I started reading all these books on fake IDs and, you know, they had these companies, I don't know if they're around anymore, but it's called like Loon Panics Press, uh, Paladin Press, and like these kind of subversive counterculture, you know, book distributors. And uh, I started ordering these books, you know, like Reborn in the USA, like Paper Tripping, one, two, and three, understanding U.S. identifying documents. And so at this time when I'm forming this plan. Like the know, Anarchist Cookbook. Couple, Remember the Anarchist Cookbook? That was like part of that stuff. Probably the most famous one from right. the, the public. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I'm reading all these books, right? And so I'm figuring out, you know, how to get real fake ID, you know, like through the DMV and, and stuff like that. Because, you know, I knew I was a fugitive. You know, I knew I needed you know, ID because I couldn't use my own. And I knew I needed to establish an ID that I could use forever, you know, because I was like, you know, after seven years, I'm going to be declared legally dead. So, you know, it was kind of disappointing after that first two weeks, you know, and I found out like my whole ruse, it just kind of like unraveled, just like my drug empire unraveled, 
you know, but, uh, you know, at the time I thought I was like this super smart kid, but, you know, in retrospect, you know, I, I was really naive in a lot of ways, but, you know, I still, you know, I got a lot of fake IDs, you know, I, I just couldn't, you know, it, it didn't work out how I wanted. So, you know, eventually as a fugitive, um, you know, eventually I, I made my way back to Texas and I, I hooked up with some of my, uh, contacts there for weed. And, um, at first I was selling weed in Texas you know, to like the kind of the restaurant crowd, you know, I was hanging out partying with people who worked in restaurants, you know, waiters and waitresses, and I would sell to them. But, you know, anybody that sells weed in Texas, you know, you, you can't really, the weed is so plentiful, especially back then, you know, the brick weed, you know, was so plentiful, you can't really make money. So eventually I hooked up with one of the cooks and, and we became roommates and he was from St. Louis. And so I started quizzing him, you know, I'm like, man, how much can you get for a pound up there? I'm like, you know, you got friends, you know, you know, people. So eventually, you know, I grabbed like 20 pounds from, from my Mexican contact and I took 20 pounds up to St. Louis. And that kind of started my second, uh, run, you know, semi successful run as a drug dealer while I was a fugitive. And, uh, I started building like a new little thing, uh, you know, new little business running, uh, drugs from Dallas, Texas up to St. Louis. And, you know, we would bring cars or, you know, sometimes I would I would go on the, uh, you know, train, and, and not a lot. You know, I'd bring, like, 20, 30 pounds up, whatever, you know, and, and sell it in St. Louis. But, you know, not knowing this whole time, like, this whole time, you know, because I'm always the type of person, like, I research stuff. You know, like, if, if I want to learn about something, like, I read and I watch as much as I can about it. You know, I do it, like, almost obsessively, so then I can kind of form plan. You know, I did it with, like, you know, the, the ID books, and then, you know, when I was a fugitive, I used to watch, like, all the fugitive shows, you know, like America's Most Wanted, just to see, you know, like, how they were catching people, how stuff was transpiring. And so I'm watching all these shows, and, uh, you know, most of the people, they're, like, all violent people, you know, like mass murderers, serial killers, you know, shit like that. So I'm like, oh, these, I'm, like, a first-time nonviolent offender. I'm like, man, these motherfuckers are never, you know, they're never going to find me because I'm not going to be a priority. I'm not going to fuck up. But, uh, you know, not knowing the whole time, I'm fucking top 15 U.S. Marshals fucking, you know, top 15 fugitive list for, for whatever God knows why they decided to make me. But, um, you know, I did find out years later when I was in prison, when I started doing a Freedom of Information Act, and I found out there was this prosecutor named Henry Hudson, who was like, he was like the assistant head prosecutor in Northern Virginia, like when my case went down. You know, and, and too, like back then, like, you know, I was from a good family. So like, uh, like they gave me like a personal recognizance bond, you know what I'm saying? Like I was looking at 20 life and they gave me like a PR bond, you know, back then, because, you know, I was from a good family. They didn't think I was going to do anything. And plus, you know, they wanted me to cooperate. They were still, you know, confident that they were going to be able to flip me and I was going to make cases for them. So this dude was like the head of the uh, U S attorney's office in Northern Virginia or the second, you know, and then all of a sudden, this dude switches to the head of the uh, U.S. Marshals in Northern Virginia. And then this dude does, like, all the paperwork to make me a top 15 fugitive because, uh, you know, I guess he feels like, you know, I made him look bad or I was like a black mark, like, on his record, you know, or I was like the, you know, the little punk kid that, like, outsmarted him and he was, like, super law enforcement dude. And it's funny now because... You know, and I found all this out years later, you know, doing Freedom Information Act. You know, a lot of this stuff's blacked out, but, you know, if you read it all, you can kind of, you know, figure out what happened. And it's funny now because this dude now, this dude Henry Hudson, 
he's a federal judge on the appeals court in the fourth circuit. You know, that's Northern Virginia. That's the fourth circuit. So, you know, not saying, you know, that, that, that my case made him, but it's almost like I've always felt like, first off, they made me bigger than I was, you know, like in the papers and stuff, because in the feds, every new case, and, and you know, I know you guys know this because you guys research and stuff as much as I do, you know, every new case is public enemy number one whatever case they're working on. That's like the worst people ever. So, you know, they made me to be way bigger than I was and blew my stuff up in the paper, you know, like I was this big LSD kingpin when I was just, you know, this little dude, you know, selling at colleges. And then uh, second, this dude goes to the U.S. Marshals and this dude fucking makes me fucking top 15 most wanted, you know, so he like blows me up again. It's funny, right, because I got my wanted poster, right? And, you know, like most wanted posters say, like, should be considered armed and dangerous. Mine says, should be considered dangerous. He faked his suicide. <laughs> so it's like, like, what the fuck are they saying? Like, I'm a danger to myself? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it's just so, like, you couldn't say armed and dangerous because I didn't carry guns. Like, you know, I didn't have any violence. So it's like, should be considered dangerous. He faked his own suicide. So it's just crazy. So basically, this dude did all the paperwork and, uh, you know, whatever. So they built me up into this big drug dealer, then they built me up into this big fugitive, and now this dude, you know, whatever, you know, so many years later, he's a fucking federal appeals court judge. So I mean, you know, go figure the math. So did someone sell you out? How did they? How did they get on your trail in St. Louis? All right. So actually, I um, I got busted actually in the county I live in now, St. Charles County. I live in St. Charles County here with my wife, and um, you know, I was selling weed, but uh. I just got busted on, on some on some stupid shit. It was like we we were waiting, like I was waiting for somebody to bring me some money, and I was with this other guy, and he sold he sold weed for me too, but he had some weed in the car, you know, that I didn't know about. And it was only like maybe like a half pound or something, and some brick pot. And you know, I just sold like two pounds, you know, and I was waiting. The dude was taking it, and then he was going to bring me back the money. So we're waiting in the back of this Burger King, right? First, we're, we go in the Burger King, you know, we're eating whatever, but then, like, the dudes, you know, drug deals take forever. So the dude's taking forever, so we're eating, and then we fucking go back out to the car, and then we're like, oh, man, you know, we're just waiting to go out and party, you know, get this money and go party. You know, hit the bars and stuff in, in St. Charles down by the river. And so, you know, then we got we got a little personal weed, right? So then, you know, we, we start, you know, we're going to light up a joint, and then we're like, oh, maybe we should go to, like, the back of the parking lot and smoke the joint. So then we drive my friend's truck into the back of the parking lot, and we sit there, and we're smoking a joint. And it just so happened in this Burger King, like, a week before, you know, because it's, like, closing time now, you know, for the Burger King, a week before this Burger King had been robbed, and they went in through the back, you know, and robbed them. So, you know, these people see us sitting out there, you know what I'm saying? And my friend got long hair and stuff, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm more clean cut. Actually, I think at this time I was almost like uh, like I shaved my head, so I probably looked like a skinhead or something. But, uh, you know, they see us back there, you know, and so they, they call the cops. And then, boom, the cops roll up on us. You know, they smell the weed. You know, they want to search the car. And I'm thinking, you know, I have like two pounds on me, but it's gone. The dude has it. You know, I'm just waiting for the money. So I'm like, man, we're good, not knowing the other dude had like a half pound in the car for whatever reason, why he has a half pound when we're going out to party. I don't know. So he tells them that they can search the car and then boom, they arrest us both. And, um, they go and they arrest us. Right. But it's like, it's like my friend's car. It's, it's his fucking weed. So I, I'm, I'm like, tell the fucking car. I'm like, dude, I, I don't know what the fuck he had in the car, man. He just picked me up to go party. It's not my fucking car. And the other dude, you know, he's like, that's my shit. So he like takes it. So they fucking release me. Right. 
And I go and I fucking, you know, bail him out and get his car out on all that shit, right? You know, that same night, and I go and get my money from the two-pound deal. And actually, I use that money to help bail out my friend. But, uh, you know, they had printed me. So not knowing that I'm a top 15 U.S. Marshals list fugitive, I know they're going to match up my, my, my print. But I'm thinking from watching all these, like, American Most Wanted and all those shows like this, I'm thinking, like, this could take, like, three months, you know, for them to match up their prints. Because, you know, I watch shows. It's like serial killers. It takes them three months to match up their fucking prints, and they're serial killers. So I'm like, how it's going to take fucking at least three months for me. I'm just a little fucking weed LSD dealer, nonviolent. But uh, I didn't know. I, I was a top 15 U.S. Marshals fugitive. So they matched my prints up in three days. And then they had, like, the... Uh, they had like the fugitive fucking task force is fucking going and they go, you know, I have fake ID. So all my shit's fake ID. So, you know, they match up my prints. They knew who I am, who I am. But, you know, I used to use mail drops. I had, I ran all my fake ID through like mail drops. Right. It was like legitimate ID, but it was like, you know, fraudulent ID. But, you know, back then they didn't even have identity theft. You know, it wasn't illegal back then to have an ID in a different name. You know, back in the early 90s and the 80s, you could get, a, you know, it wasn't, it was just called like fraudulent use ID, not like how they have today. But, uh, you know, I got like mail drops, so they can't even find me, you know, so they're looking for me. All My ID goes to a fucking, you know, like a mailbox plus, a mailbox, et cetera. But this other guy's like his real name and they go to his parents' house. He's like from here and they go and they get him and then, uh, you know, they, they threaten him like, oh, you know, you didn't know he's a fugitive, blah, 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 because I didn't tell anybody I was a fugitive. So, uh. You know, and and they tell him, you know, my real name, and I'm wanted, and all that shit, and, and like he's there, you know, with his parents, and his parents are freaking out. So, you know, they're telling him, like, you gotta help him, you gotta help him. So, this dude was kind of like my right hand man. You know, I brought him up with Texas for me. He introduced me to everybody in St. Louis. So he starts taking the U.S. Marshals around to all the people that I sold weed to, you know, in in St. Louis, and. You know, they're going around and they're busting these people. Some people have weed, some people don't. But, you know, they're reading them in the riot act tone. They're going, you know, jail, 10 to life for aiding and abetting. And eventually, you know, I think like on the hit or something, they, they, they hit this dude named Dan who, uh, who I just gave him. I just gave him like fucking five pounds, you know, to sell for me. And he knew like what hotel I was in, you know, because he had just come and seen me like the day before. And they, they go and they threaten him and, you know, he could have just said, you know, he hasn't seen me or whatever, but, you know, he was scared. So he took them right to me, and then they, they busted in my hotel room. They actually they actually uh, had surveillance on me, you know, for about 24 hours because they wanted to see, you know, who who was coming in or if I was selling drugs to people or whatever so they could bust more people. But, uh, you know, nobody came because I, I was just, you know, I knew I was I was just, like, trying to put out through a couple people. And I actually, I, I had about 20 pounds, and I, I was trying to, hook up with this dude in Columbia. That's like a uh, university, university of Mizzou. I was trying to hook up with him cause he was the only dude that I knew who could buy it all at once, you know, who had the cash. So I was trying to make a connection with him so I could just get the cash. And then I was going to bounce out of St. Louis, you know, but uh, I didn't, I didn't hook up with him in time and they busted in my room and um, you know, they got the 20 pounds and I got a little bit of money. And like, I, I had a bunch of fake ID too. I probably had like 15 different IDs. I even had like some passports and they, they got all that stuff. And, um, you know, they, they busted me and brought me in. And then that was like, uh, October, 1993. And, you know, I, I never got released from prison from then October, 1993 until when I came out in, uh, January, 2015, you know, they extradited me back to Virginia. I got sentenced. I got, uh, 25 years, 304 months, 
you know, I, I got uh, on the original charge, the CCE charge, I got 292 months. But then they, they indicted me again. So they indicted me for uh, obstruction of justice, you know, because I fled. They indicted me for failure to appear. And they di- indicted me for fraudulent use of ID. Because, like I said, they didn't have identity theft back then. So uh, then I, I pled guilty to, like, the uh, fraudulent use ID and the failure to appear. And they gave me 12 more months. But, you know, this also shows you how wicked these fucking motherfuckers are. Because I had 292 months, right? They gave me 12 more months, and they ran it consecutive. Instead they didn't run it con- together. They took that 12 months and put it on top of the 292. So I had 300. I'm fucking 22 years old. I got first-time nonviolent offender. I got 304 fucking months. Like, I didn't even know how much time that was. Like, I had to figure out. I'm like, 304 months. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, the way the feds do the time. <laughs> He's doing like, the math. He's like, wait, wait, uh, that's that's 17. Uh, no, 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 that's nine. No, 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 that's 22. <laughs> I'm like, three hundred four months. So like at first you're like, oh but then you wait, wait, twelve months in a year, you're like, wait you're like you I like I'm not even that old. You know, I have how fucking old I am, right? So it's just like fuck. I don't and mean then, to laugh know, at your like, situation, Seth, but you're you're a fucking epic storyteller, man. I'm not can, I'm not laughing at your plate, but the way you're telling the story, no, man, I it's fucking see awesome. The, I can see the movie. Oh my god! So like 100%. the actor that's playing you, hundred percent, and then starts going over. And he's trying to count on his hands. <laughs> right, three hundred. <laughs> Wait, how many how many years is that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't want to be insensitive, man, but this, you're just a great storyteller, Seth. That, that that's fucking awesome. All right, so we're going to be back with Seth Ferrante for another full-length episode where we're going to get the second half of his story. Uh, we really only scratched the surface, and, and that surface probably makes for just an entire movie by itself. And then now we're going to kind of hit the back end of it um, in the next episode where, where Seth talks about going into prison and having to navigate that uh, really, I'm sure, uh, uh, intense, pressurized terrain that uh, any normal human being would be quite shook to be forced into the proverbial jungle, if you will, as a young cub being thrown in there to all the lions and tigers and bears like Seth was. But he navigated it brilliantly, and he came out the other side smelling like roses, crafted a career for himself, and, and, and really hit the ground running and has been surging for the last seven years so we'll get that part of his story uh seth thanks for joining us for the first part of the seth ferrante story for the og podcast make sure you like us on facebook follow us on instagram twitter hopefully we'll have some video content up soon too thanks scott bernstein jimmy bucciolato og out